0: I wanted to do a cast on impeachment for a couple of reasons. I mean, the most obvious is that so many people are talking about it. And this can be expected for a president that didn't receive a popular vote. So you have a majority of Americans who went to vote in 2016, and the person they voted for is not in the White House. So impeachment becomes logical. I also feel it's misunderstood a bit. First of all, I think everyone thinks the process of impeachment is easier, that it might come down to a simple vote, or uh, if we don't like a president, you know, we impeach them. I don't think they're aware of all the circumstances behind it, the history, certainly not the constitutional. Then, for the one story in history about impeachment that I think everyone knows of, there's this great mystery and real surprising back and forth revelations throughout history and different interpretations throughout history of this Andrew Johnson impeachment and why it occurred. And so you have a great story there. I mean, I don't always pick high-buzz topics, but with any research project, I look through a lot of things. I don't really just want one source unless I'm just telling a small story or reading a letter from someone. I look at a lot of things for a topic like this. Uh, JSTOR, the academic online journal service used by universities, recently created my JSTOR, which enables me to read three journals a month. So that's a really great thing. That's helped out quite a bit. Before that, it, it, it was hard to get journal articles. and. Without journal articles, you know, we're lacking a sort of intellectual heft for the podcast. Also, After Lincoln, a book by A.J. Langeth, uh, which Simon & Schuster sent me. That was a big help. James Ford Rhodes. He is an old historian from the teens and 20s and uh, gives you an older view of history. And David O. Stewart's Impeachment! Uh, which was really helpful for some of the stuff about Edmund Ross. And then Profiles of Courage, the book by Senator John F. Kennedy at the time that he wrote it. Of course, a big help. In the course of telling the story about Johnson's impeachment, there are a few people that I'd love to talk more about. And so I'm going to get into... Um, D.R. Anthony, the person that wrote the letter to Edmund Ross, the letter from D.R. Anthony and a thousand Kansans. I mispronounced it on the podcast. Uh, I said D.A. Anthony's name is actually D.R. or Daniel Reed Anthony. He's the brother of Susan B. Anthony. We'll talk a bit about him. We'll talk a bit about more about Benjamin Wade. We'll talk about Samuel Pomeroy, the other Kansan senator. And we'll talk about Vinnie Reem, the sculptor. So we're going to talk about all of these people. First, though. Someone not related to Andrew Johnson, but a kind of um, left over, something that was left in my notepad after the podcast is recorded. This happens for a number of reasons. I do have a certain time threshold. You know, uh, if, if a podcast starts getting to two hours, you know, it's getting a little more difficult. Luther Martin didn't make the cut. He did make the cut in terms of being the lawyer for Samuel Chase in the first real uh, big story of impeachment about Samuel Chase. He was Samuel Chase's defense lawyer. But Luther Martin, we had talked previously on different podcasts, was also a constitutional convention delegate from Maryland. He did not sign the Constitution. And he goes back to Maryland, where he's the attorney general, and makes a speech to the assembly explaining why he did not sign the Constitution and doesn't support it. Now, it's not a successful speech, and one of the things that didn't make into the cast is Luther Martin's great question about impeachment that he raises during his speech to the assembly. Again, the Constitution is, is being subject to ratification at this point and the states are considering and Luther Martin's against it. So he goes to the Maryland Assembly and says that one of his many complaints about the Constitution is that the only appearance of responsibility in the president, you know, you've created this presidency that's so strong and the only appearance of responsibility which the system holds up to our view is the provision for impeachment. But here Luther Martin says, when we reflect, he cannot be impeached, but by a House, and the members of the House are rendered dependent upon and unduly under the influence of the President. By him being able to appoint officers, So, without his favor and approbation, the members cannot obtain the officers that they might want in the positions. There's little reason to believe that a majority for impeachment will ever occur. Now... Here in in history, Luther Martin's wrong, but it's a pretty long history. It takes an awfully long time, almost 100 years before a House of Representatives will impeach a president. But it has happened twice in the history, at least that impeachment step. But here he goes on, especially because it depends on another body and the members of the House will be certain should the decision fail. In other words, should the president not be convicted in the Senate to earn the displeasure of a president and to subject, uh, to cut themselves off from every avenue to the emoluments of government. Oh, that great word, emoluments, has caused so much uh, controversy. So Luther Martin's question is a pretty important one to hold up now that we have two centuries of impeachment or not impeachment history. Because his two main contentions were, This is too weak of a power. The president is too powerful for this impeachment thing to work. First of all, you know, the House is going to want to curry favor with the president. You know, they're equal partners in government. They're they're not someone that can really objectively judge. And then secondly, it's not even really up to the House. So the House has to vote and put themselves out there. They're going to be subject to retribution from this really powerful president and the interesting thing is that um, some of his criticisms, you know, you could you could definitely understand, no doubt that, especially because the whole debate on the Constitution is happening before the party system. So you got presidents tied up with parties. It's their members of the House. You know, the Democrats vote to save President Clinton or the Democrats in the House and then in the Senate voted not to convict and lockstep not to convict. Uh, President Johnson so this it is a, a a the two times that impeachment has been used in history with Johnson and with Clinton those House members really did put themselves out there and then have to present the case to the Senate it's a very challenging thing they need a two-thirds which is an overwhelming supermajority in order to convict for impeachment it's a high standard and uh, it is an open question as to whether Luther Martin's criticism of the impeachment power is correct as a as a defect of the Constitution. In other words, if something is really wrong, the only remedy the Constitution has is more politics. If, if something is really wrong, it still has to be run through the same system that might have been corrupted by the individual. What about giving it to some kind of court system for review? Well, You know, that's a difficult question, too, and it's something that I believe everyone struggled with because if it goes to a court, this is what James Madison wanted for the Supreme Court instead of the Senate to try the president once the House said, hey, something's wrong here. I just wonder if it was at a court, if it would be used more frequently, if you'd constantly be submitting impeachment charges to a court. So those are the things to think about. But Luther Martin raises a great question. So, in the course of the discussion about Andrew Johnson, there were a few individuals. that was talking about a lot of people, and some just get leftovers, uh, leftover on the notepad. So, Daniel Reed Anthony is one of them. He's the brother of Susan B. Anthony. You know, you know, we think of like abolitionists, and we think because they were do-gooders that they were probably these like skinny, wimpy types. But that's not true of D.R. Anthony. He was a Massachusetts publisher and abolitionist. He helps raise money for the settlement of Kansas then in 1857, he puts his feet where his money and his mouth was, and he leaves Massachusetts and moves to Kansas. He quickly, you know, he's publishing the Leavenworth Times as well as the newspapers in the area. He's a rough and tumble guy. He's a big guy. The one guy calls him a coward in 1861, a rival publisher, Robert Statterley, and he kills him in a duel. Now, Anthony's also going to get shot at himself. And in one case, a guy grabs a horsewhip doesn't like what he wrote in his newspaper and horse whips him. I mean, this is a rough you know frontier town, even though these these are you know allegedly genteel people moving from Massachusetts d r Anthony was involved with the Underground Railroad in Leavenworth, and he helped a free man named William Dominic Matthews provide refuge. To escaped slaves, you know, fleeing the South and coming to Kansas. He gets appointment as the town postmaster. At one point, he's a mayor. Leavenworth is the end of the telegraph line, and um, that makes it important. He becomes a lieutenant colonel in the Union 7th Regiment, Kansas Volunteer Cavalry. But after the war, he does not get along very well with Andrew Johnson. Well, first of all, because he's removed as postmaster at Johnson's instruction. He didn't support Johnson's Reconstruction. Here's what one journal writer says. I, I think it's it's interesting. When studying D.R. Anthony, there are times when his life takes on a Forrest Gump quality, particularly within the abolitionist movement, where he frequently appears as ancillary yet interesting character. You know, he's ubiquitous, always there. John Brown conducted his raid on the Harper Ferry Armory on the night of October 16th, 1859. He failed to capture his mission, However, almost from the moment of his arrest, plans were afoot to prevent his execution. D.R. Anthony worked with R.J. Hinton, Hoyt, James Montgomery, and a number of other prominent members of the abolitionist movement to break Brown out of jail. It doesn't work, but in the course of that, Anthony contributes $300 to the effort. There's another story following the Harper's Ferry raid that involves Frederick Douglass. Now, Frederick Douglass is one of the most prominent African-Americans in the pre-Civil War era. And John Brown goes to him, tells him about his plans for Harper's Ferry. And Douglass wants nothing to do with it. But Douglass became a marked man anyway after Brown's raid, despite his opposition. The governor of Virginia put a warrant out for Douglass's arrest. And Douglass has to flee to Canada. It's during that time that D.R. Anthony and his sister, Susan B. Anthony, shelter Douglas's children while their father's out of the country. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call. Click or just stop by.
1: Granger for the ones who get it done. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
0: But DR Anthony is one of these people that we don't hear as much about. Um, really wanted a strong reconstruction, wanted to put down the rebels, um, free every slave, every man of all nations, kindred, tongue, and color. He wanted a more violent destruction of the South and those who had at least led the rebellion. Um, In Leavenworth, there's still a bit of fighting. Now, Bleeding Kansas is kind of over at the point of the Civil War, the northern side the 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 free side the republican side has won they just have greater numbers there are parts of um you know Kansas that have confederate sympathizers anthony grabs a group together and they raid and plunder and burn down farms of those who are supporting the Confederacy. They also attacked Missouri. This is against the um, orders of the local Union General, Thomas Ewing. His enemies called him fiendish and bloodthirsty. His blood boiled at a moment's notice, they said. You hear about a guy like this, a real kind of fighter, swinger, and once you do, you realize that Edmund Ross has the Kansas Center who would have known Dr. Anthony very well. Getting that telegram from Dr. Anthony and 1,000 Kansans telling him to demanding that he say his vote. Now, you know why he was kind of like, oh, yeah, shove it. I don't need to tell you. Just old Dr. talking is blowing his mouth off again, you know. You know, his sister Susan B. Anthony, um, one of the. Uh, key leaders in the the movement for women's rights. And as he's in bleeding Kansas and trying to get Andrew Johnson impeached, Anthony and nearly other 50 women in Rochester, New York, attempt to vote in the presidential election of 1872. Fifteen of them, including Anthony, are arrested. We talked about another fellow who actually had a very progressive position on women's rights early on, and that's Benjamin Wade. Um, Wade, we said, you know, he'd been a cattle driver. He worked as a laborer on the Erie Canal. Then he gets his law degree in Ohio. And from minute one, he's a member of the Whig Party. He's uh opponent of the Fugitive Slave Act, opponent of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, joins the Republican Party as the Whigs collapse one of the most radical American politicians of his era. And that's why it almost would have been crazy if if through the device of impeachment, I mean, I just think it would have been an extraordinary thing if through the device of impeachment he became president. Because you would have had a president that favored women's suffrage, trade union rights, equality for African Americans. This would have happened all in 1868. A senator who was highly critical of capitalism And argued that an economic system which degrades the poor man and elevates the rich, which makes the rich richer and the poor poorer, which drags the very soul out of a poor man for pitiful existence is wrong. That's the way he felt about capitalism. And the guy came one vote in the Senate away from becoming president. Here's what um, John Roy Lynch, a historian and one of 22 African-Americans elected ...to Congress from the South during the Reconstruction. He was elected from Mississippi. Uh, He wrote a lot of books about Reconstruction, trying to set the record straight. And here's what his opinion is on how Benjamin Wade influenced that impeachment vote. It was believed by many at the time that some of the moderate Republican senators that voted for acquittal of Andrew Johnson did so chiefly on account of their antipathy to the man who would succeed to the presidency. That man was Benjamin Wade of Ohio. He was a strong party man. He had no patience with those who claimed to be radical Republicans, yet to refuse to abide by the decision of the majority of the party organization, as did Grimes, Johnson, Lincoln, Pratt, and Trumbull. The sort of active and aggressive man that would be likely to make for himself enemies of men in his own organization who were afraid of his great power and influence and jealous of him. As a political rival, that some of his senatorial Republican associates should feel that the best service they could render the country would be to do all in their power to prevent such a man from becoming president. Now, he probably wouldn't have been president for that long. It's hard to say. During the impeachment trial, the Republicans nominate their candidate for a president, and that is General Grant. They want to win the election. General Grant is going to provide more votes than Benjamin Wade is. So I don't believe that Benjamin Wade's presidency would have lasted very long, but what they wanted to do was after the impeachment vote, ben- Benjamin Wade becomes this kind of, you know, as as the president pro temp becomes the president of the United States, and then they were going to run Benjamin Wade in the 1868 election for vice president. So he would be right there with Grant. It would be Grant and Wade. After the failure of impeachment, that doesn't happen. And they go with Schuler Colfax, who is the current speaker of the House. And he's just as radical as Wade, but he doesn't have the, the rough and tumble edge to him. Wade is out of office in Ohio immediately after the impeachment vote. He doesn't become vice president. He doesn't become president. And he leaves politics and joins a railroad. We talked a lot about Vinnie Rehm and uh, Lavinia Rehm living in the house where Edmund Ross had a room. She's gaining a little bit more fame, and she's also very well known in the Capitol. She has a studio in the Capitol, and she's securing, trying to secure not only sculpture uh, commissions from the federal government, but also from various states. So she's going to, at one point, sculpt uh, the first governor of Iowa for a statue that's there in their state house. Uh, her Lincoln is still on display in the Capitol building, and she's probably just as well known for the statue of Admiral Farragut that uh, is in the Navy Memorial uh, right near the metro there in Washington, D.C. She's also very well-known uh, well for a sculpture of Sequoia. Uh, sequoia is a Cherokee Indian that took the Cherokee language and made an alphabet. And uh, she had some connections, some friends who were Cherokee she was a working woman and, you know, had obligations as a wife and a mother. She gets married uh, in 1878. She has a child in 1883. This really slows her down from doing a lot of sculpture work. Um, and she plays a bit into the talk about women's rights because Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton are talking to her. like, Look, you're the celebrated sculptor. You're working for a living and you got to join our movement and be more active. And she normally uh, she usually refused. She was just a lot more conservative about these things and said that, you know, women had never done anything for me and actually have trashed my work in a lot of different cases. So, you know, it could be one of the reasons she's not celebrated as much in in history, but she did play that short role or no role at all. We don't know in the impeachment of Andrew Johnson. Samuel Pomeroy was the other senator, and so he provides a contrast to, as we're trying to decide whether Edmund Ross was either a hero or a snake, uh, what we know about his other Kansan senator, Samuel Pomeroy, is that he certainly was one who received bribes and tried to bribe because one of the things that's going to happen, Kansas decides who their Senator is going to be in 1873. This is still the time when senators are alleged elected by the legislature. So there's a Kansas state Senator named Alexander M York, and he kind of does his own little mini sting operation. A Senator Pomeroy pays him $7,000 to secure his vote for reelection to the Senate. York, instead of taking the money, I mean, he takes it, but he publicly discloses that the bribe was made. Pomeroy then loses the election. Now, there's a whole investigation in the Senate in February 1873 before Pomeroy scheduled to leave. He says, oh, this 7,000 was received, but it was just we were just trying to start a bank. I wanted his help in starting a bank. That's why I gave him the 7,000. The Senate forms a special committee on the Kansas senatorial election. I mean, there's a lot of back and forth, but they determined there was insufficient evidence to sustain the bribery charge. Um, There's other senators who feel that the the explanation of the bribe was so improbable. Um, I think it's important. And and then I I think the Senate just didn't want to move so much on the issue because he was out of office anyway. The voters had made that call. So. I think it's interesting as we try to look at Edmund Ross to realize that there weren't many saints in this era of politics, particularly out West. And there was a lot of, uh, uh, you know, if you had a senatorial position like that, there was a lot of uh, money on the table. One of the uh, a last thing to note about Samuel Pomeroy is that uh, his deeds were so infamous that Mark Twain used him in the in one of his novels, The Gilded Age, and it is the fictionalized model for Mark Twain's Senator Dilworthy. That's Samuel Pomeroy. Thanks for listening, and thank you for helping with the Premium Podcast. Your support helps a lot. I mean, one of the things that has happened is I no longer pay the hosting service, all right? That's so... The, the website hosting is completely covered by subscribers, and uh, that's, that's been a big help. Um, so thanks for your support.